Well, if someone were to ask you to describe yourself uh, using just one word, I wonder what word you would use. Think about that. Uh, probably right now some of you might be thinking tired or hungry, right? But those words really describe how you, how you feel, not who you are. I'm talking about a word that would describe who you are at your core. Maybe the one word that would best define you. I think if we polled people on the streets in town, we'd probably get all kinds of interesting answers. And I bet if we polled people throughout the church in this country, we'd get all kinds of interesting answers as well. In fact, I think a lot of people would find it difficult to be able to give a single word description of themselves because I think it's rare for people in our culture to think of themselves in such a singular way to the point that they would clearly define themselves with just one word, right? Depending upon who I might be talking to at any given time, I would say pastor. I'm a pastor, an outdoorsman, a motorcyclist, if I'm with the CMA group, right? A musician, a writer, a father, a husband. I can think of all kinds of words to describe myself depending upon the season in our culture. Some might respond with Democrat, Republican, Independent. Some football fanatics might say Clemson or Alabama. Maybe not in here, but some might say I'm a homeschooler. For some of you whose kids are grown, you are recovering homeschoolers. Uh, but that's two words, so it doesn't count. But the list goes on. You get the idea, right? The truth is we may, we may indeed be all of those things and more. But as Christians, we're called by God from the standpoint of our identity, at least, to be singularly minded. Proverbs 4, 25 through 27 says, Let your eyes look directly forward and your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet, then all of your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. And in Ephesians 4, 4 through 6, the Apostle Paul, referring to all Christians, says there is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. You see, throughout Scripture, the people of God are called to live with a singular focus on Him to the point that we, in truth, should be consumed by Christ. In fact, the author of Hebrews describes God as a consuming fire in Hebrews 12, 29, which makes sense as Hebrews, of course, was written to a group of persecuted Jewish Christians living outside of Israel to the east. And being Hebrew... They would have understood the concept of an all-consuming God far better than your average Gentile at that time because the Hebrew worldview was holistic, meaning for the Jews there was no separation between secular and sacred. Everything was sacred. Everything was spiritual. And so God and His purposes could be found in everything, which meant all that they did, all that they said, all of their understanding of the world and everything in it, it all related back to God. There was no separation for the Hebrew people. God was all-consuming. He saturated every aspect of their lives. The Greeks, however, held to a Hellenistic worldview, which separates the material world from the spiritual world. So I have my job over here, my friends over here, my, my family is over there, my free time is over here, my faith is over there, and, and we keep God right over here. That is, in truth, uh, still influencing Western culture heavily today. In fact, St. Augustine, borrowing from Plato, was an early proponent of blending those two worldviews together into what is called dualism, which would describe many modern Western cultures, including Western Christianity. So that today, we keep a, a degree of separation between the different areas of our lives, which we step in and out of as we see fit, because that's how we were raised to think. That is, that is what's been modeled for us, most of us growing up for, for generations. So we may be consumed by our sense of God as we sit alone studying His Word, or as we meditate on Him, or during times of prayer, 
or like we are today during a gathering in church as we worship or study the scriptures together. And yet in the next moment, we might be engaged in something that in our minds is wholly disconnected from God or faith or anything spiritual whatsoever. So that life for most Westerners is really made up of the sum of its individual and separate parts, where even to the devout Christian, though we may believe that God is sovereign and supreme, we still largely view him as a part of our lives, one component of our sum. But remember what Paul wrote, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. To the early disciples, Jesus Christ was everything. He was all-consuming. So they were entirely committed to making new disciples or to die trying, and in fact, most of them did. Staring down cruelties unimaginable to us, many of those early believers were burned at the stake Many were crucified on crosses. Some were strapped to hot iron chairs and run through a gauntlet of wild animals that were tearing at them limb from limb. And all they had to do was recant their faith in Christ to be spared. But these early Christians were perfectly content to stand their ground and simply say, I am a Christian. Their entire existence, all that they were, could be summed up in just one word, Christian. Ignatius, a pastor from Antioch and a, a disciple of the Apostle John, upon being condemned to death in Rome about uh, A.D. 110, just before being led into the Colosseum to his death, on the cusp of being ripped apart by animals, wild animals, he wrote these words. It is not that I want merely to be called a Christian, but actually to be one. Yes, if I prove to be one by being faithful to the end, then I can have the name. Come fire, cross, battling with wild beasts, wrenching of bones, mangling of limbs, crushing of my whole body, cruel tortures of the devil, only let me get to Jesus Christ. Jesus wasn't merely one part of their lives. He was everything, and we see that even today as so many are being martyred in other parts of the world, right? When, when you're made to kneel on the ground, hands tied behind your back just before being beheaded because of your faith in Christ, what else could possibly be going through your mind at that moment? Not your job, right? Not, not your belongings, not your hobbies, not your finances. No, in that moment, you're thinking about Jesus Christ because in that moment, Jesus Christ is either everything to you or he is nothing to you. Given the opportunity to recant your faith in Christ, to turn away from him and disavow the gospel in order to be spared, no one would willingly choose to die unless Jesus was everything. One Lord, one faith. One baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. What a clarity there must be in that moment when everything else is stripped away from you, including your freedom and in moments your very life, when all that is left is your faith in him. In that moment, there is no ambiguity concerning your belief in Christ the decision to die for him has to be made with a singular focus and an absolute clarity. And it really is with that kind of clarity that we should be facing every day of our lives with a clear and singular focus on who we really are, Christians, believers, followers of Jesus Christ, the one with whom we are consumed, the one who is over all and through all and in all. The Apostle Paul certainly lived with that kind of clarity. In fact, in his letter to the Philippian Christians, he makes a statement that sums up the entire existence of all true Christians. In Philippians 1.21, he says, to live is Christ. A few weeks ago, we talked about the importance of sharing your testimony, but as Paul so often did in this one statement, he just takes everything up a notch as he says, look, your entire life 
not just your life in church or your life at community group or your life when you're with your believing friends. No, all of your life is a testimony because to live for the believer is Christ. So what else is there? What else is there that doesn't pale in comparison? And the truth is, our lives, whether we want them to or not, or whether we realize it or not, every one of our lives are testifying to something. How we live our lives speaks volumes to other people about what we say we believe when we claim to be followers of Jesus Christ. So just ponder for a moment what, what it would be like if we had the time and patience, really, and awareness, and resolve, and clarity to ask ourselves with every single decision that we make each day, is this Christ? Am I representing Christ in this decision? Am I, am I being the love of Christ to the person right in front of me right now? Am I offering Christ by my words and my actions and my decisions day by day, moment by moment, breath by breath? Because for unbelievers, all that many of them will ever know about Jesus is what they see in us. So you tell me, how important is it that we understand and accept the fact that for Christians, just to live is Christ. Our lives should be consumed by him to the point that if we actually did that, if we if we actually considered Christ in every single decision of our lives, every single conversation, every single transaction, every single encounter, how would our lives look differently than they do now? How would people see us differently than they do now? How would they view the church differently than they do now? I wonder how would we be impacting the world around us differently than we are now? And most importantly, how would unbelievers view Jesus Christ differently than they do now? Because listen, do you understand? All that many unbelievers will ever know about the person of Jesus Christ is whatever they see in us. So how important is it that we live out our lives with the understanding that to live is Christ? He is the sum of all our parts. So as we embark on a new sermon series today, working our way through the letter of Paul to the Philippians, we're going to see Paul expand on this idea that to live is Christ and what that actually looks like for us today, which I pray will deepen our understanding and realization of just how consequential how we live is for those unbelievers that we encounter each day. But listen, also for us. And how we understand and realize the value of every decision that we make for Christ and the effect that that has in our own lives. So let's turn there together. If you have your Bibles, we'll put it up on the screen as well to Philippians chapter 1 and we'll read it together beginning with the first two verses. Paul and Timothy, servants of Christ Jesus, to all the saints in Christ Jesus who are at Philippi with the overseers and deacons, grace to you. And peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. So right off the bat, Paul identifies himself and Timothy as servants of Christ Jesus. And the word servants in this opening is the Greek word doulos, which is literally translated as slave. And in the Greco-Roman context of this, uh, the predominantly Gentile readers of this letter, when Paul uses the word doulos, that would have only meant slave to them. They would have very clearly understood Paul to be saying that as believers, we are slaves of Jesus Christ, which is to say we are owned by, we belong to, and are therefore wholly subservient to him and only him. We're bound to our master, which means all of our identity, who we are, is all wrapped up in the one to whom we belong, Jesus Christ. And not only was Paul writing this letter from prison in Rome around A.D. 62, but when he established this church in Philippi, it was his first church in what is today Europe, he was also imprisoned there in Philippi at the time, back in A.D. 51, where we read in Acts 16 that he leads this Philippian jailer to Christ, who presumably became a part of this congregation and read this letter. And so 
these people surely understood quite well Paul's perspective on believers as slaves of Christ because of their firsthand witnessing of his own life and how he lived for Christ. And then he addresses the letter to all the saints in Christ Jesus who were at Philippi with the overseers and deacons. So he says, all of you, all of the believers, all of the church, including the leadership. So just to be clear, no one is exempt from this. We are all of us in Christ Jesus, which is to say Jesus Christ is the basis of our common existence. He is over all, he is through all, and he is in all. And then Paul says, grace to you and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, which we've come to expect when we read Paul's letters because most all of them open this way. But listen, don't miss the fact. Paul is actually extending the grace and peace of God to these people, which is really almost unbelievably profound because for Paul in the same breath while suffering in prison to say I am a slave of Christ and yet I represent him to the degree that I'm able in this present condition in this present location stuck here in prison I am able to extend his grace and peace to you that is truly amazing and that is actually possible for us as believers today because we are all, every one of us, in Christ Jesus and he is in us. No matter our degree of servanthood or leadership or ministry or title in the church and so because of that we can speak his words of truth and share his love and offer his peace and administer his grace and comfort to others because for us to live is Christ. We belong to him, we are in him, and so we represent him even in our hardest hardships, in our deepest struggles, to the point that people should actually clearly be able to recognize who the Christians are in our society. Not because we attend church on Sundays or because we wear t-shirts with religious sayings or have cool bumper stickers on our cars, but because people are consistently witnessing us representing and extending the love and grace and peace and comfort and truth of Christ in every decision that we make, day in and day out, moment by moment, breath by breath. And if that sounds like a tall order, well, first of all, it is. But that's how Paul lived his life. And that is how we're called to live our lives. And so what Paul is saying here really is astonishingly powerful. And it's just the first two verses of the chapter. So let's keep reading. Verses 3 through 11. I thank my God in all my remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all making my prayer with joy because of your partnership in the gospel from the first day until now. And I'm sure of this, that he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion at the day of Jesus Christ. It is right for me to feel this way about you all because I hold you in my heart, for you are all partakers with me of grace, both in my imprisonment and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel. For God is my witness how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus, and it is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment so that you may approve what is excellent and so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So Paul continues his letter by first of all expressing this intense love that he has for these Philippian Christians. This was a church that he planted, he started himself. These were his friends and partners in the work of the ministry, which he expresses in verses three through eight, culminating in verse eight when he says, for God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus. And I'll just tell you, I can personally identify very well with Paul's sentiment here. For me, there has never been anything like starting a church and then watching people show up and then watching them form relationships, and then linking their hearts with ours, and then partnering with us, not just in church ministry, but in life. When Paul says, for God is my witness, how I yearn for you all with the affection of Christ Jesus, I feel the very same way about you, which is how it's supposed to be. 
That kind of connection, that kind of unity among us is a critical part of our testimony to the world. In John 13, 35, Jesus said, by this all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. And Paul is expressing his great love for the Philippians in this letter here, and yet he takes it several steps further as he continues with the progression concerning that love through the next three verses, 9 through 11. And in verse 9, he says, It is my prayer that your love may abound more and more with knowledge and all discernment. So he says, Not only am I thankful for the love that we already have between us, But I'm praying that the love we have for one another in this church, I'm praying that it will steadily increase in knowledge and in discernment. Knowledge referring to knowledge of the truth of God. It's the Greek word epignosis. It's always applied by Paul throughout his letters to mean religious knowledge, the the knowledge of the truth of God. So in other words, our love for one another cannot be purely based on good vibes and positive emotions. It has to be deeper than that. Paul says our love for one another must be rooted in and increase in the knowledge of the truth of Christ, which is one of the reasons we gather as we do each week to study his word together so that we might steadily increase in the knowledge of Jesus Christ together, which should result in an increase in the love that we have for one another as we understand his truth in deeper ways. So our love should increase in the knowledge of Christ. And he says also in discernment, which is the Greek word ahisthesis, which only appears here in the New Testament, but it's used many times in ancient Greek literature to refer to a moral perception. In other words, knowing how to make the right decisions, doing what is right as we experience life together. And as we increase in doing right by one another and how we treat each other and respond to one another, so too should our love increase. Uh, This happens to me all the time. It happened to me the other day. A couple of our folks in our body here came into the office uh, just to to do something uh, for us that they didn't have to do. What is the effect of that? It just makes my love for them even deeper. Not not because I got something, but because of their expression of love to me. It's what Paul is talking about, ahisthesis, right? As we increase in treating one another, making the right decisions, doing right by one another, our love increases. And yet, Paul takes it even further. He explains that all of this that he's talking about is leading to something in our future, It is all building towards something greater. Verses 10 and 11, so that you may approve, he says, what is excellent. And so be pure and blameless for the day of Christ, filled with the fruit of righteousness that comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. Paul is saying all of this, all of this love and increase in knowledge and discernment, it is all building toward a point in our future that no human being on earth is exempt from. The day of Jesus Christ. You see, Christ is our future. Everyone thinks about their future, don't we? And most are attempting throughout their lives to build something better for their future. So we work and we plan and we save and we strive toward a better future, which is all well and good. But as Paul points out here at the end of the day, no matter how hard we work, no matter how much we plan, no matter how much we save, no matter how far we strive, no matter how successful we are in this life, no matter no matter how much we fail, No matter who we are or what we do, every single one of us, every single one of our futures ends up in the same place, standing before God. And then we enter into the rest of eternity, either with him or apart from him. And so Paul says, hey guys, I love you desperately. And because of that, I'm telling you that we need to be working toward the only future that really matters that day when we stand before Christ. So above all else, more than increasing in savings or belongings or investments or anything else, let's work and plan and strive to increase in love, being pure and blameless filled with the fruit of righteousness for that day when we are called to stand before Christ. Because for the believer, Christ is our future. He's what we look forward to. He's what we plan for. He is who we work for. 
He's the reason we strive toward the goal. Our future is Christ, and yet actually living with that mindset will mean a major shift in perspective for a lot of us who separate God and our faith from the other parts of our lives. We think about career and savings and retirement and vacations and purchases and marriages and family and friends as these individual parts of our lives. But in truth, every single one of those parts of our lives are affected by and relate to our relationship with Jesus Christ. So really, there is no secular and sacred If we're ever increasing in the knowledge and discernment of Christ, if we're ever increasing in the love of Christ, then it is all sacred because it all belongs to Him. It all relates to Him and it all points to our future in Him, which really is a radical shift in thinking for many to have to make. It is a holistic approach to our life in Christ, but it's also the truest perspective on life that we could ever have. Why? Because to live is Christ, which means there is no separation because he is over all and through all and in all. And so when we think about our future, we should think about Jesus Christ because it all points to him. And then Paul turns from the looking ahead to what is happening in the here and now. Let's keep reading verses 12 through 18. I want you to know, brothers, that what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel so that it has become known throughout the whole imperial guard and to all the rest that my imprisonment is for Christ. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, are much more bold to speak the word without fear. Some indeed preach Christ from envy and rivalry, but others from goodwill. The latter do it out of love, knowing that I am put here for the defense of the gospel. The former proclaim Christ out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. What then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed, and in that I rejoice. What a perspective! Paul is in prison, and without question, he is suffering emotionally and physically, and yet he says, what has happened to me has really served to advance the gospel. It's significant to point out here, Paul didn't just say that the gospel had continued to advance in spite of his struggles. No, he's saying the struggle itself has advanced the gospel. There's a huge difference that we need to not miss here. Because it's one thing when times are tough, when our circumstances are difficult, it's one thing to grit our teeth and put our head down and try to bring glory to Christ in the midst of our troubles. But it is something altogether different to see our troubles themselves as the very thing that is bringing glory to Christ in our lives. And that is the difference that Paul is trying to communicate to the church. He was imprisoned at the Praetorium in Caesar's household in Rome and because of the imprisonment, precisely because Paul was locked up in prison, the whole imperial guard and everyone else associated with that location, people who otherwise might never hear the gospel were now hearing the gospel. Furthermore, Paul says most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment, in other words, because of this situation I'm in, they are now much more bold to speak the word without fear. So Paul isn't simply trying to be noble here by saying, even though I'm in prison, and this is really hard, and and, uh, it's a terrible time, but hey guys, I'm still trying my best to do God's work. No. Paul is genuinely expressing joy that he is in the circumstances that he is in because those circumstances themselves are actually advancing the gospel. Man, what a perspective. Paul is full of joy, and yet the joy that he talks about in verse 4 has nothing whatsoever to do with comfortable circumstances or success by the world's standards or by the growth of his financial portfolio or even the respect that we might think Paul had by many others at the time because Paul was in anything but comfortable circumstances. He was an abject failure by the world's standards. He had so little that his only hope for survival were the gifts brought to him by the church. And as far as being respected, even many of those who were proclaiming the gospel 
Those who were supposed to be believers were doing so, he says, out of selfish ambition, not sincerely, but thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment. It would seem from the outside looking in that Paul had absolutely nothing to be joyful about. His circumstances were dire, his provisions almost non-existent, and even many of those who were supposed to be his brothers in Christ had turned against him. And yet Paul says, my imprisonment is for Christ. And because of these extremely difficult circumstances that I find myself in, most of the brothers have become confident uh, for the Lord in my imprisonment. Much more bold, he says, to speak the word without fear. Isn't this great? Even though some of those who should be supporting me are actually thinking to afflict me in my imprisonment, what then? Only that in every way, whether in pretense or in truth, Christ is proclaimed. And in that, Paul says, I actually rejoice. You've got to be kidding me. What a perspective. As Paul says to his friends, look guys, I know that sometimes life doesn't turn out how you thought it would or how you wanted it to. But even when everything seems to be going against you, don't lose your perspective because not only is Christ our future, but he is our present. Christ is our present. He is our today. And so whatever you're going through, the hardship, the struggle, the lack that you're experiencing, even when other people seem to be against you, even those who should be for you, even then, no matter how bad it gets, Jesus can use every single bit of it to advance his purposes and ultimately the gospel through you to the point that you can actually rejoice, not just in spite of, your difficult circumstances, but because of your difficult circumstances. It's simply a matter of perspective. So let your eyes look directly forward. Your gaze be straight before you. Ponder the path of your feet. He's talking about perspective. Then all of your ways will be sure. Do not swerve to the right or to the left. In other words, don't bail out on God or his plan for your life when things aren't working out the way you thought they would or should. Keep your focus on Christ. Ponder the path of your feet because he will guide you through all of it. So don't swerve to the right or to the left because every single bit of what you're going through today can bring all glory to Christ and actually advance his gospel and even bring joy into your life. How can that possibly be, Pastor, with everything that I'm facing right now, how can that possibly be? It's because to live for us to live is Christ. Have you ever really thought about that? Have you ever thought that maybe the struggle you're going through right now might not be an attack from the enemy? It may actually be a blessing from God to advance his gospel in ways that would have otherwise never happened. He said for us to live is Christ. He didn't say to live when times are good is Christ. He didn't say to live when you have it all together is Christ. He didn't say to live as long as you're not failing is Christ. No, he didn't say to live as long as you're good enough is Christ. He didn't even say to live as long as you don't screw up is Christ. No, for all believers, he simply said to live is Christ because Paul knew that God has a plan for every one of us and that plan includes ups and downs, good days and bad days, times of plenty and times of want, times of joy and times of sorrow times of triumph and times of failure and yet because he is over all and through all and in all we can rejoice knowing that as believers and followers of Christ our lives no matter how messed up they may seem no matter our struggle our lives are right now in the present right here today our lives are in Christ which means not only is he with us in the future, he has made us a pure and blameless, filled with the fruit of righteousness for that day, but he is with us today when everything is far from perfect. 
which Paul not only exemplifies in his own life, but as we continue reading, he encourages all of the believers to do the same. Let's finish the chapter beginning with the last part of verse 18. Yes, and I will rejoice, for I know that through your prayers and the help of the Spirit of Jesus Christ, this will turn out for my deliverance, as it is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed, but that with full courage, now as always, Christ will be honored in my body, whether by life or by death. For to me to live is Christ, and to die is gain. If I am to live in the flesh, that means fruitful labor for me, yet which shall I choose, I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. Convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith, so that in me you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. Only let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ, so that whether I come and see you or am absent, I may hear of you that you are standing firm in one spirit, with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel, and not frightened in anything by your opponents. This is a clear sign to them of their destruction, but of your salvation and that from God. For it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had and now hear that I still have. So after reaffirming his joy and resolve to honor Christ no matter what comes his way, Paul utters those now famous words, for to me to live is Christ and to die is gain. In other words, Christ is our future Christ is our present, and in fact, Christ is our everything. He is who we live for. He is who we die for as we are called to lay our lives down for him. And until that day when he calls us home, we are to stand firm in one spirit with one mind, striving side by side for the faith of the gospel. In other words, Jesus Christ isn't simply one part of our lives. He is our lives. All that we are and all that we hope to become, it is all tied up in and summed up in him. Jesus Christ. He is our everything. C.S. Lewis once wrote, Christianity, if false, is of no importance, and if true, of infinite importance. The only thing it cannot be is moderately important. So when people ask the question, why are we here on this earth? The answer is Jesus Christ. When people wonder, what's the point of life? Why, why bother with any of this? What is there to live for? Well, the answer is Jesus Christ. When people are confused about their future, when they try and figure out what their purpose is, what is there to look forward to? The answer is Jesus Christ, because it's all about Jesus Christ. He is our everything, and so it all points to him. That may not always be our perspective, but that doesn't make it any less true because God is sovereign over all and he has a plan for every one of us. And so regardless of what our perspective is, our perspective cannot alter his plan. And Paul's trying to get us to see that, to have that kind of perspective that Christ is our everything. So he says, let your manner of life be worthy of the gospel of Christ. Live your life in such a way that it points others to Christ in everything that you say and do. So rather than trying to coax God into changing his plan so that it will align with our perspective, we should instead be changing our perspective to align with his plan. Paul accepted God's plan for his life, even though there were obviously very difficult parts to that plan, which, by the way, Paul makes very clear at the end of this chapter, will also be the case for each of us. He says, it has been granted to you that for the sake of Christ, you should not only believe in him, but also suffer for his sake, engaged in the same conflict that you saw I had, and now hear that I still have, suffering that the gospel may be advanced. And so the point is, God's plan for our lives includes some ups and some downs. And so we should adjust our perspective as needed so that our hearts and minds are in alignment 
with his will for our lives. Why? Because this life isn't about all that we want. It isn't. It's all about Jesus Christ. He is our everything. And when our perspective is in alignment with his plan for our lives, that's when we begin to see Christ in all that we do, even in the hard parts. John Christostom, he was a 4th century Archbishop of Constantinople and an early church father, he once wrote, nothing is so incongruous in a Christian and foreign to his character as to seek ease and rest. (laughs) That is antithetical to the, the Western prosperity gospel that so much of us grew up in, which got it all wrong, because with that doctrine, Christians become convinced that if the world could just see that we are the most materially blessed people on earth, that God's favor means material wealth and perfect health, and if the rest of the world could just see the evidence of that in our lives, then they would want what we have and then would ultimately become followers of Christ because he is the guaranteed way to health, wealth, and prosperity. The problem is it doesn't wash because no matter how rich or materially successful some Christians become, there will always be others who love and serve Jesus just as much, if not more, who are not getting rich, who are not getting healed this side of heaven who are not seeing everything that they touch turn to gold. And so they're told, well, it's a faith problem, even though the fruit of the Spirit can clearly be seen in their lives. So the prosperity doctrine has failed because it didn't wash with the reality throughout Scripture and throughout life that sometimes good, God-fearing, God-loving Christians, sometimes even those folks suffer. Sometimes everything doesn't go our way And do you understand that sometimes that is exactly how God has planned it? Well then, what makes the church unique? What makes the church special if it's not health, wealth, and prosperity? It's also not what much of the next generation of the church has been trying to sell our society in this most recent iteration of the church, that that the church is a really cool place to be that we are culturally relevant and artistically excellent because we're up on what's trending in pop culture and we're tuned in to current issues and, hey man, our band is rocking and our media, it's cutting edge. The truth is that's not going to work either because, not because it isn't true. In many cases, there are churches with all of the latest cutting edge everything and the best music and the best lights and the best sound. In fact, I've been in churches and been just blown away by the experience itself. And actually, you know what? That's great. It it is. We should do everything that we can for God with excellence to the best of our ability and with all of our resources. Absolutely. But the reason even those things will ultimately come up short when it comes to actually reaching the lost is because you can still find all of that in any number of places that are not the church. So cool factor and cultural relevance and artistic excellence are not what make the church special or unique. The fact is there is only one thing, one thing that the church has to offer. There is only one thing that you won't find anywhere else but in the church, and that is Jesus Christ. That is what makes us special. That is what makes us unique, and that alone is what makes us attractive or repulsive to the world. But either way, Jesus is the only thing that truly sets us apart from everyone and everything else. He's the only thing. And so it is for that reason that Jesus Christ and only Jesus Christ should be the focus of our message for the rest of the world and not all of those other things. Because the gospel of Jesus Christ is the one and only thing that we can offer people that cannot be found anywhere else. And so if we can accept that and then view our own lives with the perspective that to live is Christ and to die is gain, that's, that's the true prosperity gospel, by the way. We prosper in Christ in life and in death when he is glorified in our lives and in our deaths. When we live that way consistently, no matter what comes our way, good times, bad times, hardship, 
struggle, success, failure, triumph, no matter what, just as Paul did, that's when people take notice. Because the world isn't looking for perfect people when they look at the church. No, they're looking for people whose lives point to Jesus Christ. Even when our lives are messy and far from perfect, the world simply wants to see us living out what we say we believe. Which is why it's so important that we represent Christ in everything that we do. Every decision. Listen, even when we mess things up royally, how we handle those messes speaks volumes to other people about what we say we believe. No one in their right mind expects Christians, or anyone else for that matter, to be perfect. Everyone knows that we make mistakes. It's not the mistake that ruins our testimony. It's how we handle the mess that we've made that can make or break that testimony. If you hang around the church long enough, any church, eventually you'll experience the bad side of church. It's just a fact. I've worked on church staffs at five different churches over the past 20 years. And for uh, any of you who have been in church for more than a few weeks, you probably know what I'm talking about. For those of you who don't know, I'll just break the news to you gently right now. Sometimes there's a downside to being a part of the church. At times, people will say the wrong thing. At times, people will do the wrong thing. At times, people will act the wrong way. Even church people, can you believe it? Even volunteers in the church. Ugh. Sometimes even the leaders in the church will mess things up. And I hate to say it, but sometimes even the pastors will say or do the wrong thing. It's just a fact. And it happens in every single church. Why? Because the church is made up of human beings, and human beings are far from perfect. So someone says or does the wrong thing, and you get hurt. But you know what? The truth of the matter is, that actually isn't the bad part of the church. Because quite honestly, that part is to be ex expected because we're all imperfect people. We all have some degree of dysfunction in our lives that we struggle with. And so every one of us messes up from time to time. And so in truth, that is to be expected from time to time. What should not be expected in church, however, is the way those mistakes are so often handled. That is the bad part about the church. The fact that so many of us, when we mess up, instead of recognizing that to live is Christ, even in our mistakes, even when we mess everything up, ultimately he can still be glorified in our response if we will respond in the character of Christ, increasing in the knowledge and discernment of him. Unfortunately, that's not what people so often do because they're far more concerned with themselves and their own preservation than they are with the health of the body, the family of God. And so they either go nuclear and cause a ton of division or destruction or hurt, further hurt in the church, or they'll pack up and leave, or both, because they've been hurt. Or they've hurt someone else and they don't want to face it. So we get hurt. Sometimes legitimately we get hurt by the church, maybe even by a leader maybe even by a pastor. I'm not talking, by the way, about churches who are teaching false doctrines or churches where there's systematic abuse that isn't being dealt with. We should leave those churches and go somewhere that is a true representation of the body of Christ. But even in the true church, if you hang around long enough, there is a reasonable chance that you may be hurt by someone at some point. And if your response is to lash out or to stir up division or even to just quietly walk away, how are we representing the character of Christ to everyone in this world who's watching? Because listen, Jesus' disciples screwed up a lot. They made a lot of mistakes. They said and did some really hurtful things. But Jesus didn't stir up trouble for them. He didn't say, you know what, I'm out of here. I'll go find 12 new guys that I can have church with. He didn't write them off. He could have. 
But he stayed with them and he continued to be in fellowship with them and all of their mess and all of their hurt and all of the things they screwed up, he stayed. In fact, after all of their mistakes and the betrayal and the lack of faith that they showed in him, after all of that, Jesus stood up and said, behold, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. Wow. That's how Jesus handled people in the church who hurt him in the deepest ways. And here's why that matters for us today. Because sure, every time we're hurt, we can go find another church. There's surely no shortage of them in this neck of the woods. But the problem with that is that's exactly what church people have been doing for decades The world is watching us. And by the way, we haven't had this problem here. We're a young church, so it isn't happening. But I'm just giving you the warning that Paul is giving us. People are listening to other church people trash one another. They hear us complaining about each other. They see us abandoning one church family for another because of something that offended us. But I don't believe it's the mistakes that turns unbelievers away from the church. Because again, everyone accepts that everyone is imperfect. Even Christians Mistakes are to be expected. But what the world should also be able to expect from the church is people who deal with their mistakes and their hurts differently than what's common for much of the rest of the world. So instead of making the situation worse by your anger or hurt, or instead of giving up and walking away, we respond with the character and grace and love and forgiveness of Christ recognizing that even in our troubles, we can glorify him based on our response. And through that response, we actually become stronger and closer with one another in the process. And then our testimony, just ask Paul, our testimony becomes even more powerful than it was before. And that clarity The clarity that he had while suffering in prison to be able to say for me to live is Christ and to die is gain. That is the perspective, the singular focus that we should carry with us every single day, moment by moment and breath by breath, because to live is Christ. And honestly, what else is there? What else is there that doesn't pale in comparison? He is our everything. And the unbelieving world around us needs to actually see that in our lives because all that many unbelievers will ever know about the person of Jesus Christ is what they see in us. So I ask you once again, what would it look like if we had the time and the patience and awareness and the resolve and the clarity to ask ourselves with every single decision that we make each day, is this Christ? Am I representing Christ in this decision? Am I being the love of Christ to the person in front of me right now? Am I offering Christ by my words and my actions and my decisions day by day and moment by moment and breath by breath? I think if we actually did that, Our lives might look differently than they do now. How would people see us differently than they do now? How would people view the church differently than they do now? How would we be impacting the world differently than we are now? Because those outside the church, I don't think they're looking for perfect people who have it all together all the time without any problems ever. No, they're looking for something real, something authentic, something that is true, something that is sure. They're looking for something they can be a part of, even with all of their own mess and all of their own mistakes, but they need to see that modeled in our lives. You see, what people are really looking for is Jesus Christ in us. So you tell me, how important is it that we with great clarity Live with the perspective that Christ is our future. Christ is our present. Christ is our everything. That for us, just to live is Christ. That alone is the sum of who we are. Let's pray.